Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by John Gerd. John is a director at Market Measures, an independent full-service market research agency based in Winchester, Hampshire. John, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. Morning. Absolute pleasure having you, John. Now, first and foremost, the purpose of this podcast is to gather um, distinct perspectives on leadership. And leadership is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the whole COVID-19 situation and business leaders having to navigate their firms through this crisis. Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it has posed a huge challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think it's uh, fair. It could be six weeks in certainly the most challenging um, <clears throat> period in my career in terms of uh, leadership just because of the, uh, the uncertainty. You know, so we've got um, 16 people at work um, and just in the, the week before the, uh, the full lockdown, um, you know, lots of the, uh, the projects that we do are ad hoc. And so we, uh, we saw a massive decline in, um, in demand um, and uh, we needed to take action pretty, um, pretty quickly. Yeah, so we had some fairly difficult conversations with people before um, the chance to introduce the, uh, the furlough scheme. And so uh, certainly it's been uh, acutely challenging. I think it's the most polite term I can um, put on the last uh, couple of months. And can you think of a time in your career when you've had to take similarly difficult decisions or is this very much uncharted territory in that sense? No, I think this is very much uncharted territory. I mean, we've had um, the odd period of, uh, of challenge in the past as a, as a business. Um, just because of the you know, fluctuations in the, the amount of work we get. But most of those happen over a period of time which is uh, is, is visible. <clears throat> so you can see from you know, weeks or months away um, what is likely to be um, coming in in terms of uh, project work um, in you know, the foreseeable future. I think the, the real challenge with this is the, the, the speed at which everything happened and basically everything ground to a halt. You know? So we work with um, with you know, big retailers across the world, so people like Primark and uh, JP Sports. Um, and quite understandably, you know, we can't get to customers in their stores if their stores are closed. Mm. And so you go from one week of having a, a job board full of uh, live projects um, to the next week with all of those projects on hold or, uh, or cancelled. And so the speed with which we actually had to make um, decisions was certainly unprecedented from, from our point of view. Um, but it's very much a case of, um, of being clear and open with uh, with everyone who uh, who worked with us. Um, that the ambition is to get from you know out of the other side of, of the, the the crisis in in one piece, um, which sort of required everyone in the uh, in the business to uh, to you know take sacrifices in terms of either short term uh, pay or uh, short term layoffs, um, which actually have now resulted in uh, in, in furloughing quite a number of our uh, our team for um, for the hopefully short term it's a step that businesses have had to take of course to uh, to safeguard themselves and uh, one thing um, that 
that really has her put to the test um, this period is the ability of businesses and indeed governments to not just be proactive and have long-term visions and plans for the future and measures in place, but also the ability to be reactive as well. Um, we've also seen some quite um, contrasting early approaches to the crisis also. Um, of course, we in the UK were not as quick off the mark as some countries in going into the lockdown and introducing harsher measures. We, of course, did that on the 23rd of March, whereas the Italians, for example, who have just announced um, a raft of measures to start easing their lockdown went into their quarantine on the 9th of March, so quite a little bit earlier than we did. Um, Would you describe your own leadership style, John, as being more of a proactive leadership style in diving in and getting on top of issues straight away? Or do you tend to sort of be a little bit more reactive, sit back, let things play out a bit, and then sort of take measured decisions from there? Well, in this instance, then, I think the majority of um, the business had had to be proactive because of the the immediacy with which everything um, everything happened. Yeah, so th- we made decisions as a, a company quicker than we ever had done before um, because we had to. Um, and so by the, the Wednesday during that week, we'd come up with a, a plan of how we could um, you know, cut costs effectively, and that's primarily meant with, uh, with staffing, uh, without making anyone redundant. Um, but absolutely, this is certainly uh, a time for being proactive rather than uh, to react to the situation. Mm, for certain. Um, and um, would you say that this experience has been a learning curve for you as a business leader as well? Because quite often we do hear that times of difficulty such as this do bring out the best in people and you learn more from times of crisis than you do from when things are going well. Yes, no, absolutely. I can agree more. I mean, whether it's a positive learning curve, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the um, yeah, one of the things is that we've been, we've, we've tried to be as open and communicative with our staff and you know, colleagues of mine um, as we can be. Um, and so every time that we, we, the management team go in for a meeting, we then get everyone else in the business into the, uh, the boardroom just to you know, discuss what we've been, we've, we've been talking about. Um, and so that certainly in terms of communication and openness is, uh, is, is very much something that we'll, we'll take on from this. Um, you know, because it's, uh, you, you've got to, keep everyone um, up to speed with, uh, with what the business is, is doing. Exactly right. And um, it's important to remember as a business leader um, in any walk of life that it's just as much about the team of people as it is about yourself. It's not just a one-man operation or a one-woman operation. It's just as much about those around you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a business, in a, any company really, it's just a collection of people that do a, a similar thing. Um, and so from our point of view, without the, um, the, the guys that, um, that work with me at Market Measures, we haven't really got a business, and so it's uh, it's very important from from my point of view that uh, that we do come out of this the other side as intact as uh, as we possibly can do. Absolutely, and um, when you think of the word leader, John, one thing that I would like to um, understand um, as well is what that word actually means to you. What sort of qualities do you think that a good leader, not just in crisis but in any sort of context, ought to have? Well, I think a good leader, you know, the, the ambition has to be that, that, that they inspire people to, to be better or to follow them or to, you know, follow their uh, their own career paths and ambitions and be as good as they can be. I mean, I think, you know, leadership is uh, is a very challenging thing in, in terms, especially for small companies like, um, like mine, you know, with, with 16 staff. Yeah, we tend to uh, to be the leaders of the company because we're good at what we do, not necessarily because we're good leaders. You know, and and so a leader can set a 
vision and an ambition for the company that everyone can buy into and follow and actually encourage them to do it, motivate them to do it for their own benefit as much as uh, the benefit of the, the shareholders and owners of the business. Then I think for me, that is what a good leader does. And you talk about the importance um, of inspiring people as a leader. Um, can you think of any examples of people that you've worked with or worked for that have maybe inspired you during your career and had an influence on that leadership style that you've taken on? I'm not sure that anyone that I personally work with has, has necessarily inspired me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I look outside of, uh, of, of market measures and there are the, you know, you know, know people like you know, Richard Branson, for example, then, mm. you know, he's, he inspires people to uh, to follow the, the Virgin brand and values and things. Um, but from a, I, I think that's quite rare. Um, and, you know, from the, the nature of the work that I've done, then I, start, I wouldn't say that necessarily I've been inspired by um, by leaders. And I, I'm not second suggesting that I successfully inspire others around me. But, but you know, it's good to have the ambition to. Mm. So do you think, therefore, that maybe experience of being a business leader has been more beneficial to you as opposed to drawing inspiration from any individual, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's the thing is that I, I, as well as drawing inspiration, then, you know, as you go through your career, then you remember things that you like about people who are senior to you and things that irritate you. And so for me personally, then I, I try to, remember those experiences where I've either been motivated or demotivated by actions of people superior to me um, and try either to do that or not to do it as a, as a leader, you know, because it's, um, you, you kind of remember how it felt to be, I don't know, you know working hard and not be recognised for it, for example, um, or, you know, not to really know where the company's going or, you know, what the result of good work is. You know what I mean, and so mm. yeah, yeah. I think I think what's you, you did make a very interesting point there, John, about um, essentially good work not being recognised, and I think that is true of uh, good leadership as well to a degree, isn't it? Because quite often um, culturally in the UK, um, we're tempted to think of leadership as being people in the public eye, so the likes of celebrities, the likes of politicians, maybe sports personalities as well, and in the business environment especially, a lot of examples of really, really good leaders who may be not necessarily sticking their heads above the parapet but quietly getting on with their work. That can quite often go um, unnoticed, can't it? Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the challenges as well in uh, in smaller uh, companies is um, you know that I'm very happy and comfortable doing what I'm good at. You know? So in terms of actually doing research, then um, then you know I'm I'm completely in control of the the outputs and what we're doing. One of the challenges is of, uh, of encouraging them to find their own you know their, their their own personality in terms of their work um, and actually letting go a little bit um, and letting other people do the work that you used to do um, and just, you know, just to you know, try and um, help them to be as good as they can be at it. Absolutely. And so if you were to sort of um, give advice to the next generation of emerging leaders, John, based upon your own experience in the uh, the business environment, what sort of advice uh, would you give them? I'd say that it's important. Communication is, is, is very important. Um, I think also having a, a vision for your business is important. And a vision that you can um, you can clearly describe to other people that other people can buy into, um, and that you can demonstrate to them that actually if they you know if they if they work hard they perform well they have ambitions to um, to improve in terms of their you know their 
their professional life, um, then there's a, there's a clear future for them in your, your business. And if we certainly think about the future um, as well, before we do uh, go about wrapping things up on today's programme, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself and for market measures and also what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly in navigating this current situation and emerging from the other side of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, <laughs> it's incredibly uncertain, probably more uncertain than, uh, than it's ever been, certainly in, in my lifetime. Um, our ambition is to still be here in 12 months, first and foremost. Um, our more ambitious ambition is to uh, flourish in the, uh, the light of a, a, a crisis. Um, yeah, I would argue that actually uh, market research is, is going to be more important over the coming months than uh, it ever, ever has been. Because you know, this shock to the uh, society and the economy means that people are likely to start behaving differently. Um, and so you know, now more than ever, we need to understand you know, how people are going to start to, to shop for you know, groceries and clothing and other items and things. Um, that's the, the optimistic view. I think the, the challenge is, is that lots of our clients, and so retailers, for example, have taken such a big hit over the last uh, weeks and months that spending money on uh, research probably isn't going to be top of their list. And so while we're going to you know, optimistically move forward um, and try and improve the business, then I think the reality is likely to be that next 12 months is going to be challenging. I think it is certainly changing times for business, um, as you uh, say, John. And what I think would actually be really, really beneficial for the listeners is if in the next few months, once we start to see how the market is evolving, we could perhaps have you back on the air with us to look at this retrospectively, see how those changes are being borne out and also catch up on how uh, market measures is doing. Um, But for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme today. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me. That's a pleasure. Nice to speak to you. I really enjoyed it, John. Thank you. That was uh, John Gerd, Director at Market Measures. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of his constituency, Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain 
historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.